I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you, Josh, for being here. Thank, thank all of you for coming too. It's um, wonderful to see so many people here. I thought, um, well, we're going to talk for about 40 minutes or so, and then we'll have questions from you that I failed to ask, Josh. Um, but first, he's going to um, give us a short reading, I think, from Moving Kings. And actually, maybe before you do that, would you like to offer us a quick summary of the book for yeah. those who haven't read it? I mean, no, but I will. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, it's uh, Moving Kings is a, a, a book really in, uh, uh, can, is really a, a book in, even though it's in three parts, as kind of these two parallel tracks. One is about a guy who um, runs a, a moving and storage business. But I, I love the, the British word, the removalist business. <laughs> you know, it's like the sanitation engineer to the janitor. I like it. But it's, uh, he, he runs a, a moving and storage business in North Jersey, which sort of services um, the greater New York area. And, uh, uh, and, you know, he moves people from home to home, but uh, increasingly after 2008, his business is, a uh, uh, lucrative part of his business is in um, eviction moving, is, is, is removing uh, uh, the possessions and, and the, the people uh, uh, who have, uh, you know, defaulted on, on mortgages uh, in the outer boroughs of New York. The other track is really his cousin, Yoav, who is in the Israeli army. Uh, he's doing his compulsory service. Uh, he's a veteran of the Gaza War. Uh, Tsuke Tan, 2014, and he gets out of the army, and as is a tradition in Israel, or has been at least since the Second Lebanon War, really, uh, when it picked up steam, he gets out and he takes his kind of gap year, he takes his time abroad. The section I'm going to read kind of follows the squad that he's with when they get out of the army, and they go to a, a bunch of different places, they sort of disperse all over the world, and it ends with Yoav, who's the person we're really going to follow, who's now living in his cousin's, a house that his cousin has in Queens, um, and he's going to start working as a, as a mover very soon. I should say that some of the you know, things he sees in the process of being an eviction mover remind him, uncomfortably remind him of some of the things that he was doing in the IDF. And the reason why I'm reading this section is not only because it sets it up, but it has a little bit of a local cameo. Uh, <laughs> maybe you'll enjoy it. This was what they did, what most of them did. They left. The moment their stints were up, they left the land they defended, the land they'd been conscripted by, and so it was never much of a choice, their defense, after having served the state of Israel for 36 months, or 154 weeks, or 1,080 days, they exchanged their drabs for denims, beat their munitions into passports, and shipped beyond the sea to find their fortunes, to find themselves or the selves they'd been and to forget the commands that bound them. Historically, of course, that had always been the function of exile or diaspora. Wandering was just an emergency measure. The Jews would dwell in a country until that country expelled them or tried to destroy them, and then they'd have to flee. But the soldiers of Kivsa Brigade, Akavish Battalion, Sira Company weren't Jewish, or they weren't exclusively Jewish. They were primarily Israeli which meant they just served their compulsory tours in their nation's armed forces until they were at liberty to book tickets abroad. All the fit, tanned, 21-year-old vets who could afford it, or whose families could afford it, would mark the conclusion of their military service by going on a holiday that ever since First Lebanon, their parents' last war, had come to feel as compulsory as that service itself. 
as if vacationing were merely war's covert continuation, an undercover mission camouflaged in sports gear. And though backpacking between the better hostels of East Asia will never be as dangerous as bulldozing hovels in the West Bank, there was still the chance of not coming back, or not coming back alive. They were in Kathmandu and drunk on rice, stumbling through the earthquake rubble. They were in Patan, where they bought this stinky local leaf that didn't fuck them up the way they'd been promised it would fuck them up. And when they brought what was left of it back to the old man who'd sold it to them, he put up his hands and showed with a smack of his toothless mouth, don't smoke it, chew. They were in Pokhara, where they bumped into a bivouac of guys who used to be in border patrol, who despite having been in border patrol knew their way around and took them to visit whores, who despite being stumpy whores knew how to say all the nasty shit that can't be said in Hebrew and to do all the nasty shit that can't be done by Jews. And two of the guys, not their guys, the other guys, told the girls that they were virgins. But the truth was that four of them were virgins. And for an extra 5,000 rupees, roughly 180 shekels, condoms weren't required. The girls had a misguided trust in the circumcised. They were up in the Himalayas and marching. They were hiking and the flatness steepened, the steepness flattened. They settled into a count. Everything had been planned like it used to be in the army, except now they were planning it for themselves. They'd mapped everything out, set their own meal times and rest times, the kilometers to cover, decided the alternate routes, deferring to one another by specialty and rank, but then the elevation and landscape changed so that no specialties applied and the ranks fell away like a boulder. The mountains seemed no closer. The mountains seemed cut out of the sky. They went ahead in formation, single file in the narrows, becoming partnered again as the ways went wide, vigilant for the slightest disturbance, a blur or rustle. Thurong Law would be theirs by the Sabbath, the Annapurna Massif would be in their hands, and they'd plant their flag at the peak of the pass, claiming everything unto, unto the Tibetan plateau in the name of Private Shlomo Shlo Regev, who'd been hit in the face by a mortar near the Erez border crossing in Gaza. After they were discharged, some of Kifsa Akavish Tsira stuck together, but some struck out on their own. Avi went to Mexico to export electronics. Binyamin went to Canada to import electronics. Yaniv was trekking the Amazon. Chaim was living with a paddleboard in Thailand or with a sailboard in Cambodia or dwelling homeless and shoeless like a monk in Vietnam, weaving baskets out of bamboo just for the therapy. He was like a loose reed himself, blown along the coast between Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh. And Mickey was conquering Paris. Amir was laying siege to Berlin. Moti and Dani are storming Warsaw, having left Krakow in smoldering ruins. Eli, Eli was bumming around India, the beaches, full moon parties, new moon parties. Each phase got its own rave in Goa. Not that Eli was noticing the phases. MDMA was keeping the sun in his eyes and turning his ears into conch shells. At a club in Karwar, an Irish guy had called him a dirty Arab. And after Eli had said he was a dirty Israeli, the guy called him a kike and Eli took a swing at the guy. And then the rest of the guy's Irish stag group materialized and Eli had to leave. He had to leave the state. He went to Kerala, to Kochi, and followed the tides. He stayed, still stayed in excellent shape and stayed very active online, sharing updates on wave conditions and posting how to keep fit on the go at imshieli94 at youtube.co.il. Sammy, who'd made Aliyah at two years old from Soviet Russia, traveled back to the new Russia, only to realize his parents hadn't lied. Moscow was disgusting. St. Petersburg was snobbish, and the language he'd spoken at home in Petitikva wouldn't be enough to get by. It was a two-year-old's. Waitresses, shop clerks, anyone left who recalled his parents all laughed at him, resented him. They refused to pity the lucky Yid who'd escaped. He'd been his squad's best marksman, and its only soldier to wear a yarmulke, knitted black and the size of a bullet wound from a Galatz SR-99. Soon he was going around bareheaded, sitting at cafes, filling out applications and remediating for the entrance exams to the Technion, no chance. University of Haifa, no chance. Afeka College of Engineering, maybe. Cholon Institute of Technology, maybe. Smoking cigarettes, drinking cognacs, ordering ham proshki and getting fat, and developing the suspicion that he was balding too. And with each turn page of his trigonometry textbook, he was rubbing his skull, wondering what if anything was missing. Natan, 
who'd been the squad's commander, a Sergeant FC and a recipient of the Medal of Distinguished Service, had resettled himself in London. He'd enrolled in some degree program offered by some online university that once he'd finished it would entitle him to a promotion, though not to a promotion with raise, from the job he'd been working since arriving at Heathrow. From security guard to security supervisor for El Al. The new title would register impressively on a resume, especially on a bilingual resume printed out on thick, heavy, off-white paper. Though all it'll mean is that instead of screening the luggage, he'll be screening the guards who screen the luggage. Eventually, he'll be moved up to a desk. Next, he might even be transferred to an office of his own, and maybe not even at Heathrow. Maybe at El Al HQ in London proper, in Bloomsbury. For a while, though, he'll still be four credits shy. And then, for a while, two credits. He'll be nervous because he won't be able to afford the credits, but then his employer will pay for the class. He'll start screwing a classmate, a sturdy, pretty Brit with brown hair, round face, big freckled tits, and a big pale ass, and he'll send the rest of the squad photos of her and videos of them together, some taken with her consent, some definitely taken without, and others that'll be hard to judge, just which. And then there was him, Yoav Matsav, present and accounted for, New York City, Queens. It had been about four months since the army had dismissed him and whichever of the others had survived, and about two months since he'd forsaken the state of Israel for the states. Or, according to the cable box's coordinates, which he'd cross-referenced with the TVs, he'd already been out of Israel for one month, two weeks, three days, four hours, say. He was never any good at calculating the seven-hour time difference. He'd spent that time on the couch, which was big, with big smelly flowers on it, wilted in the frame, lumpy in the cushions, ugly. Still, Yoav slept there, not up in the bed, or he'd been trying to sleep. The first moving he did, the first night of his stay before he was put to work, and so this was just a simulation or practice moving, was to move this couch to the very center of the room and remove its plastic slipcover, which he used as both blanket and napkin. To have established so central a readout, no longer up against any walls, no longer flush with any other furniture, was to be exposed but also exposing. He understood and accepted the risks. You had to make yourself vulnerable to make out your perimeters, to protect your flanks, 360 degrees all around. It was the only place he felt at home, in all the house around him. It was where he did everything, where he woke. Thank you so much. Um, and I think that extract really draws attention to some things I most enjoyed in that novel, not least of all the writing and, and, and um, your kind of the care of your, you take over your sentences. But one thing that struck me when you were just reading it is, is the relationship with place that the characters in this novel have. I, I think of all your novels, it's probably the most rooted. It's the most New York novel of, of mm. yours, I would say. And I wonder how important it was for you to to see New York through an outsider's eyes, through Yoav's eyes in this case, but also through David's, who is similarly disconnected from, certainly from Manhattan life. Yeah, or likes to think he is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I, it's very difficult to say what it means to be of a place, like a, especially a city, right? I mean, you know, the, 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 the people who kind of telegraph by dint of their occupation, their accent, or the way they look, mm -hmm. right, to, to, to most people authenticity in a city are typically the people who can't afford these cities anymore. You know, I mean, I, I love when they're, uh, you know, w when you watch something where someone has whatever a New York accent means anymore, <laughs> right? Um, and, and, and the idea that, you know, that, that, you know, all cops are Irish cops that talk like they're in a 70s movie. Yeah. You know, um, you know, for me, there so is... So these are markers of place that have now been completely removed from... Right, or, or, or there, but there are more markers of, of our yearning for a degree of authenticity. Mm -hmm. There are more markers of our desire to, to feel like there are markers and, and to gauge, be able to gauge our distance then as, as um, interlopers, right? And I, 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 so for me, these characters, um, the Israeli soldiers who come to New York, Yoav and then later his friend Uri who come and work as, as movers. It's, it's seeing it, you know, very much as, as, as outsiders, but it's really also seeing it entirely through, through an ideology or at least through a way of living, which is this military way of living. You know, the idea of pulling the couch out away from the wall just so you can kind of see everything around you. I mean, that's an exaggerated kind of comic version as an introduction, but, you know, but, 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 but there is something about going into a cafe, uh, especially having grown up when these characters grew up, during the Second Intifada and, you know, and going into a cafe and understanding 
almost like we said at the beginning of this, if there's a fire, I already forgot what doors we're supposed to use in case of a fire here, but being able to, you know, know what's the quickest way out, you know, or what's the most exposed place to sit. I think that, you know, a lot of these are these moments in the novel when those similarities cut through these people encounter other Israelis or as you say in that, in that. Right. And, 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 and a lot of this book is, is them trying to, or at least Yoav, because uh, Uri is sort of unable to, is, is Yoav attempting to shrug off these ways of being. Mm. And, um, and, and, you know, this is a person who, you know, grew up, in, you know, in his family. Immediately from the age of 17, 18, you know, 17, you begin doing some induction stuff. 18, you go into the army. Three years later, he's out. He's 21. And, uh, and this is the first time he really goes abroad. Um, you know, Israel is a country that you really can't drive out of. You know, you take a plane, you, you don't go to a neighboring country, you go pretty far out. And so, you know, in this, especially, you know, you want to talk about what class he's from, mm-hmm. socioeconomically, where he comes from in, uh, in Israeli culture, you know, this is the, the first time that he, um, that he sees the world. And in fact, it's an inversion of many other people of saying, you know, when I went to college, it's the first time I met a Jew. Well, for him, this is the first time he's met anyone who's not Jewish, really, you know, besides a person who was his English tutor mm-hmm. kind of way back. And I, I think that there, is, uh, there was an element I wanted to write about not only coming to this consciousness of a larger world, but also coming to a consciousness of, of having been raised with a certain ideology. Or even ideology is a big word. How about just coming into a world and realizing that you were raised with a, a certain outlook, certain politics, and understanding what that means, understanding how other people perceive it, and then in some way trying to um, come to grips with what that means for uh, for the way you conduct your life in the future, mm-hmm. you know, um, trying to write a political book that wasn't um, that didn't have a program, but that had a way of feeling through things. Mm-hmm. And so, to answer the larger, to answer the question you're asking, I, I mean, I think that you know, while this is exaggerated with the character of Yoav in the book, I think this is something that, at least of our generation, that people, everyone in a city kind of thinks about, is to you know, um, cities are really there. Um, nowadays, to, to, to everything in a city really forces you, if your eyes are open, to begin um, questioning certain things that you take for granted. You know, especially when you see neighborhoods change mm-hmm. and you see um, and you see what replaces certain landmarks that you grew up with, when you see certain populations um, being displaced. And I think that you really are you, you really encounter these most intensely in cities. And that displacement, of course, becomes one of the main themes of the book, actually, the displacement both of Yoav and his kind of gap year, as you say, yeah. um, and of the people he's displaced at home. But also, it's, it's set after the 2008 housing crisis, and oh. in the end, he ends, the equivalence is made between the work he did in Israel and, and the work he does. Well, I don't, you know, I mean, equivalence is tough. I think a lot mm. of people, you know, I think that, 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 you know, so many people want you to explain things. And, and part of the problem now with metaphor is that people really treat it like it's an analogy, like there's a one-to-one correspondence, as if I'm saying that Israel occupation is the exact same thing as gentrification in New York City. And, you know, I tend to think about the metaphoric aspects of things more like a, almost like a collision, like a car accident. You know, a metaphor is you take thing A and you take thing B and you, you drive them into each other. And however the reader kind of perceives the wreckage is really the test of their own politics, mm-hmm. is a test of their own biases and a test of their own notions of what is right and what is wrong. Um, I wanted to really follow a person who went through the army and then worked as a mover, which is a very common character in New York. I would hazard to say a car- common character in many cities in the mm-hmm. world. And um, maybe more so in New York than here. Maybe, yeah, maybe more so in New York. But, living and, right. But, yeah. but, but I think, you know, is, 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 is trying to make you know, is trying to make sense of the things that, that, that are done. I mean, yes, it may be more of a thing, but, but the question really is, is, you know, many people come from, you know, societies where the things that they do are legal but are not just. And, and there is a great liberal hubris, you know, that, we un- that, that our laws and our justice are, um, are maybe, like our metaphors, more <laughs> one-to-one. Mm-hmm. And it's not the case. And I think that he's, you know, Yoav is someone who's coming from a culture where he never questioned what he did because it was legal. And he comes to a country where these evictions are happening, where, which are completely legal. And well, he makes that equivalence, doesn't he, between you know, his, all his life he has been following rules one way or another, either yes. by being Jewish or by being in the army or now. Being or just a, by being a son. Yeah. 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 And, and this is the first time where he's really seeing that he should be making some decisions for himself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with his realization that every thing that had kept him on a path until now was not really concerned with who he was or what he wanted, 
but we're actually concerned with these larger questions of, of national identity, religious identity, and family that, that don't give him satisfaction, that don't make him feel realized. Whereas his friend Uri is someone who is deeply traumatized by the army and can't, doesn't even have the equipment to come up with these, to, 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 to have any political awakening. And, um, and I wanted to kind of put these two things side by side. And the people orbiting, I mean, they're also part of the extended family. So David King and his daughter have very different relationships to Israel and indeed to the IDF. Um, yeah. David King himself is kind of nostalgic for a home he never yeah. had. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and also the ways in which, you know, Israel is that, again, that source of authenticity, you mm. know, where, where it's an authentic connection with an identity that he needs to claim because it marks him as somewhat other in America. And, it give, and, and, and for him, it justifies certain ways of, of being. It justifies, you know, the fact that he's in a business which is a dirty business, but someone has to do it, you know, which is the classic trope of, you know, I was forced in to this line of work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but, but David King, in my mind, is, is, is my New Jersey character. He's a person who constantly saw, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, constantly. He's from North Jersey, though, so he should be my enemy, but it's fine. <laughs> but he sees, he sees the, you know, he sees the city across the river, and he sees everything that he doesn't have. But he also has this, you know, he sees circles in which he's not accepted. Mm -hmm. And yet, he has uh, this great hubris that comes from really knowing how the city works and knowing the sort of evil that underlies all of it. His, his, um, his storage warehouse is by the port, you know, by, by, by Port Newark, where there's the you know, electrical grid for all of New York, where the waste disposal for all, a lot of New York happens, and uh, certainly you know, where a lot of you know, container ships come in mm -hmm. for all of the goods in New York. And, he, you know, and his, his consolation is sort of like, at least my eyes are open. I can see all of the shit. Mm. I can see all of the sweat and I can see all of the hurt that goes into the, the glamour, that goes into the, that goes into the beauty. The of wreckage the of these people's lives. That right. he's, do right. you ever watch, uh, I was <laughs> reminded, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but of Storage Wars, have you ever seen that? TV yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm yeah, kind yeah, of obsessed yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah, people yeah. sell off these containers that haven't been um, yeah. cleared successfully. But they never have a really dark... Story. No, they must edit them right, before right. they I cut mean, that look. You know, they, they never yeah. have, you know, like the most common story. I mean, look, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the storage stuff that I saw that led to this book was, mm. you know, the, the Occupy movement really, um, you know, once it was pretty permanently evicted from Zuccotti Park, went online, right? And a lot of it got co-opted into, you know, various, you know, various national level politicking that eventually led to a Sanders campaign. Mm. I'm talking about you know, certain organizers on it. But the people who were very much the street organizers for it, after 2008, had all of these actions where they were in the Bronx, Woodside a lot, in, 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 in Queens and in Brooklyn, to a lesser degree Staten Island, they would have these evictions and people would come and create these human chains around these homes. And, uh, and a marshal, actually it's the marshal officer that does it, would come in with the police. So you have people who are armed. And then a moving company that had been bonded to do the moving. And so some of them could, depending on what license you had, they could be armed as well. Mm -hmm. And they would come into a house and it was curb or store is the choice. So the person who's being evicted could have everything they owned put on a curb and then whatever, you know, pick it up, defend it against your neighbors, get it out of here somehow, or store, which means it comes back to storage unit owned by the company that is doing the eviction. And you have some people 30 days, some 60 days, some 90 days, it all depends, to claim it. And if you don't claim it, the, store, the, the moving company, storage company owns it, and they can go and auction it. And it was really seeing you know, uh, that happening and kind of, and being, you know, and feeling guilty myself as, you know, not there entirely as an activist at all. I mean, mm. being there as a rubbernecking novelist, but also someone who, you know, felt commitment to this. Is that, is that experience, did, 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 did that kind of trigger the novel then? Did that, come, did that observation come first? I mean, there is something, you know, strikingly horrible about the force of capital and the state intervening in, in a domestic setting in the home in, that, in such a dramatic way as that. Was that mm. the kind of, was that image the trigger of? I mean, it was going to some of those actions, yeah, mm. that, that really made me think, a lot about eviction as as a subject, mm -hmm. and uh, I mean, a lot of people were thinking about eviction in the states after that, and and I thought that 
you know, one of the most difficult things was to sort of um, connect it with other sort of visual elements in my mind. I mean, it was, it was the fact that a lot of those scenes reminded me of um, home evacuations in, uh, in the West Bank. A lot of those things uh, reminded me of Israeli soldiers cl clearing Jewish settlers out of settlements. You know, a few times they've done that. And it was having seen a person who was armed carry a person in like the approved way that these people learn how to carry people. Mm. And then speaking to some of the eviction movers and finding that a number of them uh, were, you know, American veterans of, of Iraq and Afghanistan who were, you know, who were hired because they know how to go into a home and take it out. And so it was the rhyme between the, the Israeli thing, which I had, you know, had, had experienced through friends being in the IDF and family, and, uh, and seeing that, that really kind of put those things together, as well as, frankly, the increasing, you know, military, the militarization of the police force mm -hmm. in the United States. I mean, we saw it, you know, tragically last night, early this morning, you know, where, you know, you're very happy that a SWAT team comes and takes out a shooter in Vegas, you know, because, you know, if they hadn't come, you know, there'd be many more corpses on the ground. Um, but the thing you then have to deal with is the fact that these SWAT teams are mostly ex-military and incredibly well-equipped. And, and it's, you have to say that, you know, while it's good that we have them for situations like this, you know, it's, it's the very, you know, they exist because our gun laws make situations like this possible. And it was really seeing the, the militarization of the police force that, 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 that brought a lot of the subjects in this book to mind. Mm. And it reaches its, its kind of horrible climax in the figure of Avery, who is one of the people that um, yeah. you have in a re-asked to evict. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, the other thing I, I thought was striking from, from that extract from what you've just been saying is, 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 the, is that question of the presence of work and the mm. kinds of work people do in cities and in particular um, moving, which isn't some. I don't think there has been a... This is the great novel of, of, of moving. Of moving yeah. isn't it? Yeah. If it's <laughs> nothing else, it's <laughs> that. Right. Right. Um, did you, have, have and yet you, movers, you know, you know, movers hate moving books. Really? Yeah, it's just like, I mean, it's the worst thing to move when you just have books and it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you do any research? Did you do it? I, 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 yeah. I mean, I've, I've gone around with a bunch of movers. Yeah. And then I had three friends who ran like a really inept kind of moving company of like broke writers <laughs> who were just like just hired by friends because we were really bad at it. But, and I went around with them a, a little bit. But yeah, It strikes so, me as a gift to the novelist, of course, because you get to see inside so many people's right. homes. Well, right. And also, you know, and, and, and moving occasions are just, you know, there are always moments of crisis for couples. It's always great when you get like, you know, you're, you're going into someone's house sometimes at like the most... Um, fraught points, you know, and, you know, the, the, the couple that's breaking up and they're going to two different residences, you know, the arguments over what's mine, what's yours, <laughs> you know, this kind of thing. Um, there, there, there are so many of these, um, of these, you know, uh, uh, someone dies, a parent dies, and, and children are kind of moving out and fighting over a parent's possessions and what's going where. And, and I, I just feel like you're sort of witness to these um, you know, in, in, in traditional moving situations, non, non eviction moving situations, you're still witness to these, these moments of like emotional intensity. Mm. Uh, uh, but and, that, and that crew from different parts of the world all coming together doing that same job. Yeah. As, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that, that element of it was what fascinated I mean, when I was, since I was a kid, I really wanted to um, write like a, a Melville or a Conrad book, mm, you know, mm. where it's like, um, a bunch of people from a bunch of different, you know, ethnicities, races, languages are like stuck together on a boat and, uh, and then something bad happens, you know, <laughs> but they sort of have to 
um, they, they have to get through it and always kind of tests who they are. And they, they, they kind of come over a, 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 you know, like the shadow line, Conrad. They yeah. kind of come into maturity through this experience. And, you know, because um, boats aren't my generation, <laughs> you know, I felt like my, my boat would be the moving truck. And my, my, you know, multilingual, multinational crew would be my moving crew. And, um, and, you know, they would be, they would sort of be driving around the city in this moving truck that would never stop, <laughs> you know, um, just moving people from one place to another. Yeah. And it, you, I think he's completely achieved that. There's a, there's a, um, there's a question of kind of style as well that I thought, um, your, the extract you read, read drew up for me, which is, I mean, it's a, it is a real, would you call it a realist novel? My, my... Yeah, I don't know. Really. I mean, what does that even mean anymore? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, I suppose that. I mean, compared to some of the, your previous yeah. books, which have kind of metafictional conceits, and I mean, they're covering similar ground. So in, in Wits, obviously, that's a kind of big millennial epic about also concerned with Jewish identity and, and the fetishization, indeed, of, right. of that identity, as, as happens at moments in here. But, but it seems to me you're telling a rather more, I don't want to say anything that's going to pigeonhole yeah. <laughs> my question. I mean, I, do, I just have Did a, you get, have a sense that you were doing something different with this book that, than you've done in previous novels? I did, but, you know, like, you know, anytime anyone claims realism, the world totally contradicts you, you know? Yeah. It's, it's um, you know, I wrote Book of Numbers, and it's this big book about the internet, and, you know, I'm much closer to these movers than I am to the tech CEO of Tetration and Book of Numbers, a man who I believe is worth $18 billion, <laughs> you know? And... But I happened to be in this place where there was this tech guy who's worth a number of billion dollars, you know? And, uh, and he comes up to me and he says, you got it right, you know? <laughs> and it's just, you know, and how did I get it right? I just made up the most ridiculous shit you would do if you had a lot of money. And of course you'd get it right. And so it's, it's you know, so for him, that was realism, mm. you know? For him, you know, give, you know, inventing a pet rabbit and giving it Botox, you know, was, was realism, you know, because he might have done that to his rabbit, you know? And, <laughs> this is realism. Like it's, 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 yeah, yeah, but I mean, but everyone's real is, is to a degree, like, you know, removed. Mm. And, and I feel like, you know, this novel is certainly closer to, to my experience of seeing certain streets, mm -hmm. you know, um, and seeing how certain streets changed. But I really feel like, you know, realism now has taken this turn of almost being the antithesis of autofiction, which is strange because it's really the opposite of what realism used to mean, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so in the sense of it's realist, meaning, you know, we respect the laws of gravity, but other than that, I made all of it up, <laughs> then it, you know, then it is. Well, there is that question of, you know, the kinds of details you choose to include. And obviously, mm -hmm. Bart has that wonderful essay on reality effects. He says, why is Flaubert have a barometer in the... Right, and, and, you know, and why is it exactly this time? Yeah, and why, the, why, why is the door this color? Right, Whereas you right. take great delight, I think, in seeing things in a way that your characters might not necessarily see them. You, you know, mm -hmm. I, I've the sad non-clink clink of plastic, the idea of a, a person being neither a vendor, vendor or a squeegeeist. On every yeah. page, there's a, there's a kind of innovative use of language that just, I think as a reader, is thrilling to encounter, mm -hmm. but which I would perhaps not allow Yoav to see the world like. I wonder if right. there's a distance between the narrative voice and, and, and the characters. Well, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just not disciplined and I'm bored. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that, you know, that the, the school of realism which is to say, you know, you keep your range of reference or illusions to the range of reference or illusions which your characters could have. Seems to me, you know, it's like fighting with both hands tied behind your back. And if you're a writer, you already have one hand tied behind your back. To have both hands tied behind your back seems insane to me. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the, the Cormac McCarthy approach, I call it, which is to say, you know, not have a large intellectual life of the character, not to have them thinking a lot of thoughts, mm. but to have recourse to very high level diction in the prose, always seemed to me to be a little ridiculous, mm. you know, um, because, it, it, because it just points out the distance between what a character is not thinking and what the author is capable of. Mm. And I, I, you know, like all good liberals, my answer is kind of pudgy and boring, which is to <laughs> say it's a middle ground between, you know, knowing what that work is like and having thoughts outside of it. But I also think that that's most people's response. You know, uh, uh, when, you know when you're moving, it's sort of like when you're exercising. What do you think about, you know? Uh, uh, you know, some guys that I was working with, like, just listened to podcasts all the time while they were moving. And other people just kind of space out, you know? Most of them got stoned, 
to move to move boxes, honestly, you know. And I just I wanted to kind of go in and out of these kind of different heads mm-hmm. and and be very free with the with the degree to which I I did that. That said, what interests me really about work, though, is is regardless of you know what anyone could presume to be the intellectual sophistication of the characters. You know, I mean, they're 21 years old. You know, I mean, I, I was really dumb when I was 21. I mean, every you know, everyone is pretty dumb when you're a 21 year old guy. It, what was interesting to me was more the um, the ways in which uh, they accumulate very quickly a vocabulary of work, and shop talk always interests me. I love you know those. Um, you know, those, those, that, that wisdom that only comes from knowing how to do something, from knowing how to do a job, and from those words that only exist within a profession. And um, that always uh, has been an obsession of mine. And moving is, is certainly one of them. Mm. And it's the vocabulary and the, you know, those, and those wonderful descriptions of moving, I think, yeah, depend on that over. Right. The- and they're, they're only, that's the only vocabulary that a lot of these people have in common. This moving crew, you know, um, mm. you know, Spanish speakers, Haitian Creole speakers, Hebrew speakers, Arabic speakers, you know, and what they really have in common is this sort of odd language of moving and this very almost, yeah, and almost like, you know, in another language. And a ritual. Yeah, uh, yeah. Becomes, I was struck when looking through my notes for this again, the, your description of when you comes across a pair of Hasidic Jews in New York and, and he, he speculates that they, they become a bit paunchy and jolly in, mm-hmm. in America, despite the fact that, as you write, the point of being a Hasid was to be the same in every country in every age. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of um, transnational, inter- or, you know, month- identity surviving yeah. that translocation seemed to be kind of one of the important themes of the book and actually provides a kind of the dichotomy between how David relates to his... Jewish identity and how Yoav does seems to hinge on that question of transplantability. That David David goes back yeah. to, to 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 That's Jerusalem right. yeah. and ha- and has a, a, a kind of a, an awakening by misreading every situation he comes across. Right, and he also just has this you know classic thing of having fucked up so badly with his daughter, right? Yeah. right? And having kind of made that such a horrible, um, just been a horrible parent, and the daughter, you know. He's essentially saying that thing of, you know, I worked hard to make this money to send you to college so that you could come back and condemn me politically. <laughs> and she's saying, right, yeah. you know, you're welcome. And, <laughs> and, and he feels like such a failure and he feels like such resentment and anger when he thinks about that relationship. And she certainly feels that as well, that he has to look elsewhere for a replacement child. Mm. And it was so easy to adopt Yoav, who's this kind of distant cousin, as this son, as a sort of a second chance. Mm. And, you know, to be that, to be that mentor, you know, but, but once again, he screws it up. And, uh, and for me, the real, for me, that real um, shift is, is when he is looking for something that explains to him why he feels so alone, why he feels so such, like such a failure, having a successful business, having really reached this American dream, which for his generation of the child of immigrants was, you know, is, is about as good as you can ask for. Why does he feel so empty? And it's precisely at that point that his answer is, uh, is really found in the, again, the, the justificatory framework of Israel that tells him that he's part of another nation, of another national project. And so that, that justifies his own sense of, of being an other in America. And I don't, you know, this isn't a nonfiction book, and, uh, and I didn't write a nonfiction thesis, uh, but what did interest me in this is that, is that white working class need for identity because democracy, or call it capitalism, doesn't give you that identity. It's very difficult to believe in a document right? Like the Constitution. It's very difficult to just believe or derive your identity from a document that certain people of a younger generation will tell you is just uh, a series of ideas from white men who own slaves who are trying to protect themselves from a crazy British king. There is this then retreat into this almost this primal ethnic identity that's founded in immigration as a uh, origin myth of, of, of the American um, middle class. 
that, that he retreats to. There's the Italian versions of it, there are the Irish versions of it, and this was the Jewish version mm. of it. And it's the idea of, you know, what comprises your identity? It's, um, it's family, it's your community. You know, what happens when you fuck up your community and your family like David has? Well, you go search elsewhere for it, and that's what leads him to Israel. And in the end, even that's not. And even that fails him, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah. it shows throughout the entire time that in his search for these alternate definitions of his own identity, he's actually betrayed the idea of what America was, because or America could be, because he is um, in the active process of, of unhoming people. Mm. And yet, he's, I mean, it's, it's his vision of what America might have been, right? I mean, I, 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 when, when you were just describing him then, it struck me that he's a kind of curdled Trump figure in a sense that, mm-hmm. or if Trump hadn't gone on to invest his father's millions in slightly as successful a way as he did. First novel after the election to mention Trump. Really? No reviewer mentioned that. I was, I was, I, I thought, yeah, I really <laughs> thought someone was going to pick that up. I put that, in, I put that in in proofs three days after the election. <laughs> Nobody mentioned it. Anyway. I think I should o- open... Questions. I was very taken by your comment that you were uh, influenced by Melville and Conrad because reading the book, I kept thinking this is a cross between Billy Budd and the Heart of Darkness. But and then it ended that way, you know, in that apocalyptic, dark vision. Uh, but you see, you, you're able to integrate a lot of things, and it, I'm trying to remember the the uh, the two Israeli characters are the, and King David are the these are these are the sac. One of them is the sacrificial lamb, who David sends the general away to get killed, right? Yeah, Uri. Yeah. Uri is killed in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how early in the process did you come to these names, and was it part of the structure of the novel? I just, you know, I, I always thought that there was a uh, uh, that there was an interesting sort of friendly fire plot to be written. In the story of in the, one of the many stories of King David in the Bible, right? So that one talking about is actually about Bathsheba, Bathsheba's character in the book as well. But basically, you know, King David falls in love with this woman. This woman is married. Bathsheba is married. Bathsheba is married to uh, to Uri, and uh, and Yoav is uh, uh, one of David's generals. So David says to Yoav, "Take Uri out to the front line, and make sure he dies." And so he does. So he sort of takes him out to the front line, and uh, and and uh, and Uri is killed, and it's for this sin that David is not allowed to build the temple in Jerusalem. It is you know the the, the true blood on his hands, and that, so that's the the, the the kind of biblical element to it. How early in the process? Pretty early because I I you know I I needed names, and I needed to name a lot of Israelis, so I wanted to name all of them sort of after David's warriors after the group there. <laughs> But, um, but I did think that there was something about um, being your own worst enemy, you know, and self-sabotage, which is the most humanizing element of every war story. I mean, it's certainly, certainly been the story of America's last few wars, you know, is uh, uh, we don't, you know, you, you don't need enemies when you have yourself. And, uh, and I, 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 so I knew that that story was pretty intrinsic to the novel. I read a review which said you were influenced, this, this in the reviewer's mind, said that you were influenced by Foster Wallace and Philip Roth, and I was intrigued. If I was going to read one of your novels, I do like books which you have to think when you read them or follow. Which, which one, w- <laughs> I mean, what would, you, what would you recommend? This one or...? Always this one. Always this one. <laughs> Always okay. this one. Yeah. You don't like the internet, I believe. Some. No, no, I oh. don't like the. No, I, I, I mean, how can you not like that? Saying well, you I, don't like the internet is like you don't like the, the world. I mean, that might be well, true. I don't yes. Like the <laughs> no, I felt sympathy with that. That's all. Yeah. So. No, I mean that book. You know that book about the the internet was about uh, a writer coming to terms with, with what it means to write in the age of the internet. Okay. And. Uh, and you also did a you know, piece of almost performance art, which was. The, yeah. the, Josh wrote a novel in real time on the internet. Um, that, that's no a different. Called oh, Pickwick, different. which was while people were reading. Yeah, along. these people who called themselves my friends uh, <laughs> put cameras inside my apartment or the apartment I was living in at the time and asked me if I would write live online. I mean, they called it a novel. It's a piece of <laughs> shit. But said, "Would you write the first 
world's first live written novel on the internet. Um, anonymous commenters were anonymous comments were allowed, so you can imagine <laughs> some of what was said. You know, that was my. I didn't like the internet the week after that happened, <laughs> but um, no, I. Uh, 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 but this one's shorter, you know. What I've heard so far, I liked. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you, thank you. Curious how, in writing this book, sort of a writing process question I have for you about um, writing Moving Kings, how the residue of having written Book of Numbers affected your process now. If that, if that book, which I haven't read, but I read an interview in Bomb Magazine where you were discussing this, um, and something, um, some of the topics that you say you were addressing in that book, I think about quite a lot on a very regular basis. I can't help it, in fact, in terms of digitalization and how that affects just everyday experience, you know, and kind of the experience of having an iPhone and things like that and seduction of screens and which are just fractions and pieces, um, it seems to me, of, of the topics you were trying to address with that with book of numbers mm -hmm. but back to the realism question or an, an aspect of of that um how did you find the process of writing this book after having kind of expressed something or gotten something out of your system with book of numbers and did that in some way inform going through that experience inform your process writing this book i mean i i uh i mean i think every book is a reaction against the previous book and a desire to. I like your word residue. It's like an icky, gooey word. I like that. I was trying to wash off the residue, yeah. But with every book, it's sort of getting rid of that residue. You know, I, I don't know that my experience is so interesting or so, or so um, representative, but I will say that, that, you know, a lot of the things that I thought about in Book of Numbers seem to me to, or that I learned in Book of Numbers seem to be like enduring principles that, that, that follow along almost everything I'll, I will write after, which is to say, you know, what, what is an enormous hallmark of the novel from the very origins of the novel? It's that it's, you know, uh, uh, two characters need to be kept apart for long distances of time, right? Uh, because so much of reading a novel is reading kind of characters being brought together or being at cross purposes for a while or not being able to account for another person's whereabouts or for misreading intentions. No Romeo and Juliet with iPhone. Right, no, no. With an iPhone and Romeo and Juliet, it'd be over in two seconds, yeah, you know, and be yeah. over in a positive way, maybe. Yeah. Or she'd probably just meet somebody else three seconds later. Right, yeah. she'd, she'd swipe left. <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, is really that, that, you know, these principles of how do you deal with, with information and how information travels in a novel has really changed. You know, um, how do characters kind of present themselves because so much of living online is about self-presentation. And so now you, you have really, I mean, it's look, obviously it's always been there in the novel, but now it's come much more to the fore. You have this idea of how does a novelist want to present a character? But even in a third person omniscient novel, there's going to be the question of how the character self-presents. How does the character decide what information gets to other characters? And how do you decide as, as, as a narrator, you know, whether you are a first person narrator you know, what things you have access to, whether you're an omniscient narrator, how you deal with their use of technology to mm. both expose themselves and also to show the characters in their fullnesses. Or do you show them in their fullnesses? That question about whether Yoav can, can know the kinds of things or have the kinds of vocabulary that he right. has is, is complicated by the phone too. I mean, what, right. you can Google anything. You can, you totally. can have the knowledge that you Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so for me, that, that, that is a, it, it's a real question about, um, about how communication and how information works in a novel, which then leads me to uh, talk about or think about questions of what the novel is for. And if you want, if you take a very blunt, you take a very blunt instrument to the history of the novel, you have you know exemplary novels, which should just tell you what to, how to act or how not to act, right? And then you have um, you know novels of moral instruction or, or stories of moral instruction, and then you have this like vast swath of the information novel, which is really you know comes to, you know comes out with the Victorian novel, which is you're telling people how other people live. 
right? How how other classes dress, what they eat, what looks what it looks like upstairs, what it looks like downstairs, and you have this huge information aspect to the novel. And so, just being very again, being really rough and being very broad with these categories, it seems that we we're certainly done with a novel of moral instruction. We're certainly, and I think we're maybe done with this 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 novel of information. Mm. And and I think that 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 so. I know this is a very long answer, and this answer will, I'll be answering this question for the rest of my life. But I think that that a lot of it really has to do with realizing that maybe the next step is is a sort of a for now at least for me is a novel of frustrated information, ways of writing novels that actually use these ways of transmitting information, but somehow jam the system up. You know, have people that you know ways that that actually. Um, that communication is constantly frustrated or information is wrong mm. and how people act on faulty information or how people act on 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 representations of the world that they find through communication that aren't actually accurate it's corrupted or, it's corrupted yeah, yeah. The, 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 i was uh, Jonathan Leatham said something like last year, I think, where he said, if there's no internet in your novel, you're essentially writing historical fiction. And that's even truer of, of mobile phones that have, as you say, completely altered right. our relationship with ourselves and with others. Oh. I noticed I read a great deal of fiction last year, um, and so many novelists are still just doing things like, oh, he'd left his phone at work, you know, as, oh, a, as a get right. out of that. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's, right. we haven't, uh, or it's always, you haven't got to grip, you have, but um, you're... Your peers haven't necessarily got to grips with. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of it is like it. it for me, it's the it's the it's the bathroom and eating rule. Yeah. You know, like you, you read the book and you're like, when do these people ever go to the bathroom? When do they ever eat? When do they shower? But the difference is, is that like when do they charge their phones? Yeah. Or like you know, when do they answer their email? Becomes a much more integral part because to you know, the elementary aspects of life aren't really our communication aspects yet. You know, and, and it's, it's partly because the technolo- technology is so complica- complicated. Like, it's sad when a novelist just doesn't quite get. I remember in, in Don DeLillo Zero K. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge DeLillo fan, but mm-hmm. he seems to imply that um, smartphones use odometers to, to to measure how far people have walked rather right. than GPS, and that really right. pissed me off for some reason. Right, and and, and, it and so much of it is spent underground in a place that yeah. doesn't have phone service. <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, and and I think that that is you know I think that that's pretty. You know, the, the element that I liked in the book, you know, to be very specific about this, is that, you know, I, I was along on this move when, you know, someone was, was moving and, uh, and they brought the person along in the truck, you know, like, and the, the other person took the, took the subway to meet the place, but, you know, came along in the truck. And, you know, we're in the fuck, we're in the truck. Everything is in the back. And he's looking at his phone which is tracking the truck, you know? And it's just that moment where he's just like looking at the dot, which is him moving. And it just, you know, that to me was like, you know, it, it wasn't that the fact that we were still alive that gave him faith that we were getting there. It was that the dot was Winking still blue and blinking. Yeah. And it was, it was, it was really that, um, but it's that surrendering of faith to this, you know, this insane platform Right, because there's something in it that we invest uh, almost as supernatural. Mm. That 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 really, um, to me, is interesting. It, and it's that and it's that it's that desire to disbelieve our own senses, but to believe these completely insane and often corrupted technologies. That 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 interests me as a subject. And I think as long as that, um, as long as that we can continue to place, you know, to have misplaced faith in these technologies, that there's hope for the novel. What a positive note, I think we totally. should yeah, end on that. So thank you very much, Josh, um, for fascinating Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.